Section 30 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Curtis Matson. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 16, Part 1. Pedo-baptism, its accordance with the institution of Christ, and the nature of the sign. Divisions of this chapter. Roman numeral 1. Confirmation of the Orthodox Doctrine of Pedo-baptism, sections 1 through 9. Roman numeral 2. Refutation of the arguments which the Anabaptists urge against pedo-baptism, sections 10 through 30. Roman numeral 3. Special Objections of Servetus Refuted, Sections 31 and 32. Sections. Number 1. Pedobaptism. The consideration of the question necessary and useful. Pedobaptism of divine origin. Number 2. This demonstrated from a consideration of the promises. These explain the nature and validity of pedobaptism. Number 3. Promises annexed to the symbol of water cannot be better seen than in the institution of circumcision. Number four. The promise and thing figured in circumcision and baptism one and the same. The only difference in the external ceremony. Number five. Hence, the baptism of the children of Christian parents as competent as the circumcision of Jewish children. An objection founded on a stated day for circumcision refuted. Number six. An argument for pedobaptism founded on the covenant which God made with Abraham. An objection disposed of. The grace of God not diminished by the advent of Christ. Number seven. Argument founded on Christ's invitation to children. Objection answered. Number eight. Objection, that no infants were baptized by the apostles. Answer. Objection, that pedobaptism is a novelty. Answer. Number nine. Twofold use and benefit of pedobaptism, in respect one of parents and two of children baptized. Number nine. Twofold use and benefit of pedobaptism, in respect one of parents two of children baptized. Number 10. Second part of the chapter, stating the argument of Anabaptists, alleged dissimilitude between baptism and circumcision, first answer. Number 11. Second answer, the covenant in baptism and circumcision not different. Number 12. Third answer. Number 13. Infants, both Jewish and Christian, comprehended in the covenant. Number 14. Objection considered. Number 15. The Jews being comprehended in the covenant, no substantial difference between baptism and circumcision. Number 16. Another argument of the Anabaptists considered. Number 17. Argument that children are not fit to understand baptism and therefore should not be baptized. 
18. Answer continued. 19. Answer continued. 20. Answer continued. 21. Answer continued. 22. Argument. That baptism being appointed for the remission of sins, infants not having sinned ought not to be baptized. Answer. Number 23. Argument against pedobaptism founded on the practice of the apostles. Answer. Number 24. Answer continued. Number 25. Argument founded on a saying of our Lord to Nicodemus. Answer. Number 26. Error of those who adjudge all who die unbaptized to eternal destruction. Number 27. Argument against pedobaptism founded on the precept and example of our Savior in requiring instruction to precede baptism. Answer. Number 28. Answer continued. Number 29. Answer continued. Number 30. Argument that there is no stronger reason for giving baptism to children than for giving them the Lord's Supper. Answer. Number 31. Last part of the chapter, refuting the arguments of Servetus. Number 32. Why Satan so violently assails pedobaptism. Number 1. But since, in this age, certain frenzied spirits have raised, and even now continue to raise, great disturbance in the Church on account of pedobaptism, I cannot avoid here, by way of appendix, adding something to restrain their fury. Should anyone think me more prolix than the subject is worth, let him reflect that, in a matter of the greatest moment, so much is due to the peace and purity of the Church, that we should not fastidiously object to whatever may be conducive to both. I may add that I will study so to arrange this discussion that it will tend, in no small degree, still farther to illustrate the subject of baptism. The argument by which pedobaptism is assailed is, no doubt, specious, namely, that it is not founded on the institution of God but was introduced merely by human presumption and depraved curiosity, and afterwards by a foolish facility rashly received in practice. Whereas a sacrament has not a thread to hang on if it rests not on the sure foundation of the word of God. But what if, when the matter is properly attended to, it should be found that a calumny is falsely and unjustly brought against the holy ordinance of the Lord? First, then, let us inquire into its origin. Should it appear to have been devised merely by human rashness, let us abandon it, and regulate the true observance of baptism entirely by the will of the Lord. But should it be proved to be by no means destitute of his sure authority, let us beware of discarding the sacred institutions of God, and thereby insulting their author. Number two. In the first place, then, it is a well-known doctrine, and one as to which all the pious are agreed, that the right consideration of signs does not lie merely in the outward ceremonies, but depends chiefly on the promise and the spiritual mysteries, to typify which the ceremonies themselves are appointed. 
He, therefore, who would thoroughly understand the effect of baptism, its object and true character, must not stop short at the element and corporeal object, but look forward to the divine promises which are therein offered to us, and rise to the internal secrets which are therein represented. He who understands these has reached the solid truth and, so to speak, the whole substance of baptism, and will then perceive the nature and use of outward sprinkling. On the other hand, he who passes them by in contempt and keeps his thoughts entirely fixed on the visible ceremony will neither understand the force nor the proper nature of baptism, nor comprehend what is meant or what end is gained by the use of water. This is confirmed by passages of Scripture too numerous and too clear to make it necessary here to discuss them more at length. It remains, therefore, to inquire into the nature and efficacy of baptism, as evinced by the promises therein given. Scripture shows, first, that it points to that cleansing from sin which we obtain by the blood of Christ, and secondly, to the mortification of the flesh which consists in participation in his death by which believers are regenerated to newness of life and therefore to the fellowship of Christ. To these general heads may be referred all that the scriptures teach concerning baptism, with this addition that it is also a symbol to testify our religion to men. Number three. Now, since prior to the institution of baptism, the people of God had circumcision in its stead, let us see how far these two signs differ and how far they resemble each other. In this way it will appear what analogy there is between them. When the Lord enjoins Abraham to observe circumcision, Genesis 17.10, he premises that he would be a God unto them and to his seed adding that in himself was a perfect sufficiency of all things, and that Abraham might reckon on his hand as a fountain of every blessing. These words include the promise of eternal life, as our Savior interprets when he employs it to prove the immortality and resurrection of believers. God, says he, is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Hence, too, Paul, when showing to the Ephesians how great the destruction was from which the Lord had delivered them, seeing that they had not been admitted to the covenant of circumcision, infers that at that time they were aliens from the covenant of promise, without God and without hope, Ephesians 2.12, all these being comprehended in the covenant. Now, the first access to God the first entrance to immortal life is the remission of sins. Hence it follows that this corresponds to the promise of our cleansing in baptism. The Lord afterwards covenants with Abraham that he is to walk before him in sincerity and innocence of heart. This applies to mortification or regeneration. And lest any should doubt whether circumcision were the sign of mortification, Moses explains more clearly elsewhere, 
when he exhorts the people of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their heart, because the Lord had chosen them for his own people out of all the nations of the earth. As the Lord, in choosing the posterity of Abraham for his people, commands them to be circumcised, so Moses declares that they are to be circumcised in heart, thus explaining what is typified by that carnal circumcision. Then, lest anyone should attempt this in his own strength, he shows that it is the work of divine grace. All this is so often inculcated by the prophets that there is no occasion here to collect the passages which everywhere occur. We have, therefore, a spiritual promise given to the fathers in circumcision, similar to that which is given to us in baptism, since it figured to them both the forgiveness of sins and the mortification of the flesh. Besides, as we have shown that Christ, in whom both of these reside, is the foundation of baptism, so must he also be the foundation of circumcision. For he is promised to Abraham, and in him all nations are blessed. To seal this grace, the sign of circumcision is added. Number four. There is now no difficulty in seeing where the two signs agree, and wherein they differ. The promise, in which we have shown that the power of the sign consists, is one in both, namely, the promise of the paternal favor of God, of forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And the thing figured is one and the same, namely, regeneration. The foundation on which the completion of these things depends is one in both. Wherefore, there is no difference in the internal meaning, from which the whole power and peculiar nature of the sacrament is to be estimated. The only difference which remains is in the external ceremony, which is the least part of it, the chief part consisting in the promise and the thing signified. Hence we may conclude that everything applicable to circumcision applies also to baptism, excepting always the difference in the visible ceremony. To this analogy and comparison we are led by that rule of the Apostle in which he enjoins us to bring every interpretation of Scripture to the analogy of faith. Romans 12, 3 and 6. And certainly, in this matter, the truth may also be felt. For just as circumcision, which was a kind of badge to the Jews, assuring them that they were adopted as the people and family of God, was their first entrance into the church, while they in their turn professed their allegiance to God, so now we are initiated by baptism, so as to be enrolled among his people, and at the same time, swear unto his name. Hence it is incontrovertible that baptism has been substituted for circumcision, and performs the same office. Number five. Now, if we are to investigate whether or not baptism is justly given to infants, will we not say that the man trifles, or rather is delirious, who would stop short at the element of water, and the external observance, 
and not allow his mind to rise to the spiritual mystery? If reason is listened to, it will undoubtedly appear that baptism is properly administered to infants as a thing due to them. The Lord did not anciently bestow circumcision upon them without making them partakers of all the things signified by circumcision. He would have deluded his people with mere imposture had he quieted them with fallacious symbols. The very idea is shocking. He distinctly declares that the circumcision of the infant will be instead of a seal of the promise of the covenant. But if the covenant remains firm and fixed, it is no less applicable to the children of Christians in the present day than to the children of the Jews under the Old Testament. Now, if they are partakers of the things signified, how can they be denied the sign? If they obtain the reality, how can they be refused the figure? The external sign is so united to the sacrament with the word that it cannot be separated from it. But if they can be separated, to which of the two shall we attach the greater value? Surely, when we see that the sign is subservient to the word, we shall say that it is subordinate and assign it the inferior place. Since then, the word of baptism is destined for infants, why should we deny them the sign, which is an appendage of the word? This one reason, could no other be furnished, would be amply sufficient to refute all gainsayers. The objection that there was a fixed day for circumcision is a mere quibble. We admit that we are not now, like the Jews, tied down to certain days. But when the Lord declares that though he prescribes no day, yet he is pleased that infants shall be formally admitted to his covenant. What more do we ask? Number 6. Scripture gives us a still clearer knowledge of the truth. For it is most evident that the covenant which the Lord once made with Abraham is not less applicable to Christians now than it was anciently to the Jewish people, and therefore that word has no less reference to Christians than to Jews, unless, indeed, we imagine that Christ, by his advent, diminished or curtailed the grace of the Father, an idea not free from execrable blasphemy. Wherefore, both the children of the Jews, because when made heirs of that covenant, they were separated from the heathen, were called a holy seed, and for the same reason the children of Christians, or those who have only one believing parent, are called holy, and, by the testimony of the apostle, differ from the impure seed of idolaters. Then, since the Lord, immediately after the covenant was made with Abraham, ordered it to be sealed in infants by an outward sacrament, how can it be said that Christians are not to attest it in the present day? and seal it in their children. Let it not be objected that the only symbol by which the Lord ordered his covenant to be confirmed was that of circumcision, which was long ago abrogated. It is easy to answer that, in accordance with the form of the old dispensation, he appointed circumcision to confirm his covenant, but that it being abrogated, 
The same reason for confirmation still continues, a reason which we have in common with the Jews. Hence it is always necessary carefully to consider what is common to both, and wherein they differed from us. The covenant is common, and the reason for confirming it is common. The mode of confirming it is so far different that they had circumcision, instead of which we now have baptism. Otherwise, if the testimony by which the Jews were assured of the salvation of their seed is taken from us, the consequence will be that by the advent of Christ, the grace of God which was formerly given to the Jews is more obscure and less perfectly attested to us. If this cannot be said without extreme insult to Christ, by whom the infinite goodness of the Father has been more brightly and benignly than ever shed upon the earth, and declared to men, it must be confessed that it cannot be more confined and less clearly manifested than under the obscure shadows of the law. Number 7. Hence our Lord Jesus Christ, to give an example from which the world might learn that he had come to enlarge rather than to limit the grace of the Father, kindly takes the little children in his arms, and rebukes his disciples for attempting to prevent them from coming. Matthew 19.13. Because they were keeping those to whom the kingdom of heaven belonged away from him through whom alone there is access to heaven. But it will be asked, what resemblance is there between baptism and our Savior embracing little children? He is not said to have baptized, but to have received, embraced, and blessed them. And, therefore, if we would imitate his example, we must give infants the benefit of our prayers, not baptize them. But let us attend to the act of our Savior a little more carefully than these men do. For we must not lightly overlook the fact that our Savior, in ordering little children to be brought to him, adds the reason, quote, of such is the kingdom of heaven, unquote. And he afterwards testifies his good will by act, when he embraces them, and with prayer and benediction commends them to his Father. If it is right that children should be brought to Christ, why should they not be admitted to baptism, the symbol of our communion and fellowship with Christ? If the kingdom of heaven is theirs, why should they be denied the sign by which access, as it were, is opened to the church, that being admitted into it they may be enrolled among the heirs of the kingdom of heaven? How unjust were we to drive away those whom Christ invites to himself, to spoil those whom he adorns with his gifts, to exclude those whom he spontaneously admits. But if we insist on discussing the difference between our Savior's act and baptism, in how much higher esteem shall we hold baptism, by which we testify that infants are included in the divine covenant? than the taking up, embracing, laying hands on children and praying over them, acts by which Christ, when present, declares both that they are his and are sanctified by him.
by the other cavils by which the objectors endeavor to evade this passage, they only betray their ignorance. They quibble that because our Savior says, quote, suffer little children to come, unquote, they must have been several years old and fit to come. But they are called by the evangelists brefe kai paidea, terms which denote infants still at their mother's breasts. The term come is used simply for approach. See the quibbles to which men are obliged to have recourse when they have hardened their hearts against the truth. There is nothing more solid in their allegation that the kingdom of heaven is not assigned to children, but to those like children, since the expression is, quote, of such, not, quote, of themselves. If this is admitted, what will be the reason which our Savior employs to show that they are not strangers to him from non-age? When he orders that little children shall be allowed to come to him, nothing is plainer than that mere infancy is meant. Lest this should seem absurd, he adds, quote, of such is the kingdom of heaven, unquote. But if infants must necessarily be comprehended, the expression of such clearly shows that infants themselves and those like them are intended. Number eight. Everyone must now see that pedobaptism, which receives such strong support from Scripture, is by no means of human invention, nor is there anything plausible in the objection that we nowhere read of even one infant having been baptized by the hands of the apostles. For although this is not expressly narrated by the evangelists, yet, as they are not expressly excluded when mention is made of any baptized family, Acts 16, 15, and 32, what man of sense will argue from this that they were not baptized? If such kinds of arguments were good, it would be necessary in like manner to interdict women from the Lord's Supper, since we do not read that they were ever admitted to it in the days of the apostles. But here we are contented with the rule of faith. For when we reflect on the nature of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we easily judge who the persons are to whom the use of it is to be communicated. The same we observe in the case of baptism. For attending to the end for which it was instituted, we clearly perceive that it is not less applicable to children than to those of more advanced years, and that therefore they cannot be deprived of it without manifest fraud to the will of its divine author. The assertion which they disseminate among the common people, that a long series of years elapsed after the resurrection of Christ, during which pedobaptism was unknown, is a shameful falsehood, since there is no writer, however ancient, who does not trace its origin to the days of the apostles. Number nine. It remains briefly to indicate what benefit redounds from the observance, both to believers who bring their children to the church to be baptized, and to the infants themselves, to whom the sacred water is applied that no one may despise the ordinance as useless or superfluous, 
though anyone who would think of ridiculing baptism under this pretense would also ridicule the divine ordinance of circumcision. For what can they adduce to impugn the one that may not be retorted against the other? Thus the Lord punishes the arrogance of those who forthwith condemn whatever their carnal sense cannot comprehend. But God furnishes us with other weapons to repress their stupidity. His holy institution, from which we feel that our faith derives admirable consolation, deserves not to be called superfluous. For the divine symbol communicated to the child, as with the impress of a seal, confirms the promise given to the godly parent, and declares that the Lord will be a God not to him only, but to his seed, not merely visiting him with his grace and goodness, but his posterity also to the thousandth generation. When the infinite goodness of God is thus displayed, it, in the first place, furnishes most ample materials for proclaiming his glory, and fills pious breasts with no ordinary joy, urging them more strongly to love their affectionate parent, when they see that on their account he extends his care to their posterity. I am not moved by the objection that the promise ought to be sufficient to confirm the salvation of our children. It has seemed otherwise to God, who, seeing our weakness, has herein been pleased to condescend to it. Let those, then, who embrace the promise of mercy to their children, consider it as their duty to offer them to the church, to be sealed with the symbol of mercy, and animate themselves to surer confidence, on seeing with the bodily eye the covenant of the Lord engraven on the bodies of their children. On the other hand, children derive some benefit from their baptism when, being engrafted into the body of the church, they are made an object of greater interest to the other members. Then, when they have grown up, they are thereby strongly urged to an earnest desire of serving God, who has received them as sons by the formal symbol of adoption before, from non-age, they were able to recognize him as their father. In fine, we ought to stand greatly in awe of the denunciation that God will take vengeance on everyone who despises to impress the symbol of the covenant on his child. Genesis 17:15 such contempt being a rejection and, as it were, abjuration of the offered grace. Number 10. Let us now discuss the arguments by which some furious madmen cease not to assail this holy ordinance of God. And first, feeling themselves pressed beyond measure by the resemblance between baptism and circumcision, they contend that there is a wide difference between the two signs, that the one has nothing in common with the other. They maintain that the things meant are different, that the covenant is altogether different, and that the persons included under the name of children are different. When they first proceed to the proof, they pretend that circumcision was a figure of mortification 
not of baptism. This we willingly concede to them, for it admirably supports our view, in support of which the only proof we use is that baptism and circumcision are signs of mortification. Hence we conclude that the one was substituted for the other, baptism representing to us the very thing which circumcision signified to the Jews. In asserting a difference of covenant, with what barbarian audacity do they corrupt and destroy Scripture? And that not in one passage only, but so as not to leave any passage safe and entire. The Jews they depict as so carnal as to resemble brutes more than men, representing the covenant which was made with them as reaching no farther than a temporary life, and the promises which were given to them as dwindling down into present and corporeal blessings. If this dogma is received, what remains but that the Jewish nation was overloaded for a time with divine kindness, just as swine are gorged in their sty, that they might at last perish eternally? Whenever we quote circumcision and the promises annexed to it, they answer that circumcision was a literal sign and that its promises were carnal. Number 11. Certainly, if circumcision was a literal sign, the same view must be taken of baptism since, in the second chapter to the Colossians, the Apostle makes the one to be not a whit more spiritual than the other. For he says that in Christ we are, quote, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, unquote. In explanation of his sentiment, he immediately adds that we are, quote, buried with him in baptism. Unquote. What do these words mean but just that the truth and completion of baptism is the truth and completion of circumcision, since they represent one thing? For his object is to show that baptism is the same thing to Christians that circumcision formerly was to the Jews. Now, since we have already clearly shown that the promises of both signs and the mysteries which are represented by them agree, we shall not dwell on the point any longer at present. I would only remind believers to reflect, without anything being said by me, whether that is to be regarded as an earthly and literal sign which has nothing heavenly or spiritual under it. But lest they should bind the simple with their smoke, we shall, in passing, dispose of one objection by which they cloak this most impudent falsehood. It is absolutely certain that the original promises comprehending the covenant which God made with the Israelites under the old dispensation were spiritual, and had reference to eternal life, and were, of course, in like manner spiritually received by the fathers, that they might thence entertain a sure hope of immortality, and aspire to it with their whole soul. Meanwhile, we are far from denying that he testified his kindness to them by carnal and earthly blessings, 
though we hold that by these the hope of spiritual promises was confirmed. In this manner, when he promised eternal blessedness to his servant Abraham, he, in order to place a manifest indication of favor before his eye, added the promise of possession of the land of Canaan. In the same way, we should understand all the terrestrial promises which were given to the Jewish nation, the spiritual promise as the head to which the others bore reference, always holding the first place. Having handled this subject fully with treating of the differences between the old and the new dispensations, I now only glance at it. End of section 30 Recorded by Curtis Matson, Wheaton, Illinois